Now let's uh, turn to 2 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians 2.12. I have long believed that most of us make the Christian life far too difficult. Uh, It's very striking to me that Jesus and the apostles are always simplifying things. We tend to uh, be far too abstract and try to make things too complicated and too difficult for people. But the Lord was always making things more simple. And in a a very real sense, simple things are far more profound than things that seem to be profound. For example, at one point, the Pharisees asked Jesus, what should we do to work the works of God? Now, that's a, that's a good question. That's one that we should ask ourselves frequently. What, what should we do to, to do what God is doing in the world? To align ourselves with him, to be God's workman, to do God's work. Well, Jesus' answer is, uh, I'm sure took them off balance a bit, caught them off balance. His answer was, this is the work of God. This is how you go about doing God's work. Keep on believing in me. In other words, we can't do God's work. Only God can do God's work. It's a bit brash for us to to even think that we can. The only person who can do God's work is God. And therefore, the only way to do his work is to keep counting on him, keep believing him, keep trusting, keep drawing on him. Uh, The the metaphor that Jesus used is so helpful is is the one that's on the front of our bulletin. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. In other words, the same relationship that a branch sustains to the vine, we sustain to Christ. We keep drawing on that life and producing fruit, producing character, God-like character. It's all by trust. It's all by faith. It's all by dependence upon him. Now, that that message uh, is delivered over and over and over and over again. All through the Old Testament. That's the message of the Old Testament. The just shall live by faith, not by works. Law wasn't given as an alternate way to get to God. It was given as a as an expression, a concrete expression of God's character so people would know what the standard is. But you, you didn't find favor with God by keeping the standard. You found favor with God by trusting him, by depending upon him. And then through his power, you could keep the standard. Well, the same thing is true in the New Testament, you see. Now, that's exactly what Paul is saying in this, in this uh, passage that we wanted uh, to look at this morning. Let's begin reading with verse 12, 2 Corinthians 2.12. Paul says, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye and went on to Macedonia. At first reading, this uh, paragraph seems to be out of place. It doesn't follow what uh, comes before and it doesn't, it doesn't antecede to anything afterward. But what Paul is doing, or it doesn't precede anything that comes after, uh, what, what Paul is doing is uh, is going back to his explanation for why he bypassed Corinth. Remember, he had written to them to tell them, uh, or he had in some way conveyed to them the idea that he was going to come from Ephesus to Corinth, then up to Macedonia, and then back to Corinth, and then over to, to Syria and Jerusalem. But he changed his plans. So they were saying, well, you can't trust Paul. You know, he sends us a letter telling his coming, and we arrange for a motel. Uh, We make reservations for him. We plan to have all these meetings with Paul while he's here, and and he doesn't show up. You you can't trust him. And so Paul writes to explain in chapter 1, as you know, why he did what he did, to give them some space, to give them time to deal with the sinning brother because he didn't want to come and make demands upon them. He wanted to come and rejoice with them in their obedience. So he left them alone, gave them some time. 
But while he was over there in, in Ephesus, he began to get uneasy. He sent Titus over. Titus probably was from Corinth. I personally think he's the man who's called Titius Gaius in the book of uh, Acts, who lived in, in uh, Corinth. And was a good friend of Paul's. Paul had, Paul had led him to Christ. And he sent Titus over to Corinth to try to straighten things out. And he waited and waited. And he didn't hear anything from Titus. And he began to get, get uneasy. He says, I found no rest for my soul. So he left Ephesus, probably the riot forced a premature uh, uh, departure. He went up to, uh, to Troas. And uh, someone invited him to give a series of uh, lectures. Uh, or invited him over to his house to talk to some of his non-Christian friends, and, and Paul couldn't do it. He was so upset and so ill at ease and so restless, he was unable to walk through what he calls a door of opportunity. He always encourages me to read things like that about the apostles. They're men of like passions. They have the same sort of emotional struggles that, that we have. And, and though Paul apparently tried to take advantage of these opportunities, he was just too upset and restless about the situation in in Corinth to, to go on. And so he took passage on a ship. He went across the Dardanelles over to Macedonia, and he started making his way down the Ignatian Way, which is this great uh, east-west route right through the middle of the Roman Empire, looking for a Titus. Go into Thessalonica and call up some of his friends on the telephone and find out if they, uh, they knew where uh, Titus was. No, no word. We haven't heard from him. So he goes down to Berea and repeats the process, and he can't find Titus. And as he makes his way down this Roman road, off in the distance he sees Titus. And then you have to jump to chapter 7 of Second Corinthians, verse 5, to know what comes next. He says, God who comforts the afflicted, comforted us through the coming of Titus. Thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph in Christ. You, you see how verse 14 ties in? He got this good news from Titus that they had indeed uh, taken action against this brother. And uh, things were going uh, much, much better. And that uh, brings about this great expression of praise in verse 14. Thanks be to God, who always, uh, underscore that adverb, will you? Always, always leads us in, in triumph in Christ. And through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. The word that Paul uses for uh, our translation, leads in triumph, is one verb. And it means to lead in a triumphal procession, as the NIV has it. Probably goes back to the practice of Roman generals coming back from a victorious uh, battle and parading through the streets of Rome, the general at the head and all the soldiers behind and the slaves at the, at the back of the, uh, of the train. And uh, in front would be some slaves holding up pots of incense and the, uh, the aroma of the incense would flow back over the, the entourage to the people who had won. It would smell awfully good to the to the defeated people, it would not smell good at all. Be have a bad smell. But uh, the point that Paul is making is that, is that our Lord always, 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 in every place, leads us in triumph. That's good news. Like Lucy says, winning is not everything. Winning big is. <laughs> Can't lose. So it's a, it's a no-lose situation. It's a no-cut contract. I had to laugh. I was reading a Ted, uh, Jim Poor's column in the Statesman last week about the Lakers, and he was talking about some prospect that they have for uh, for uh, to replace uh, someone. I think it was uh, Jabbar, and he he described him as a can lose proposition. And I thought, oh, that's that may be true, but with us, that's not true. We're in a can't lose situation. He always, 
always, in every place, leads us in, in triumph. Now, we need to understand what he means because he doesn't, he doesn't mean that we'll always have circumstantial triumph. It doesn't mean that we'll always have good health or that we'll have enough money to pay the bills or that we'll make it to the top of our, uh, of our corporation or that our marriages will work out exactly like we want them to or that our children will uh, or that people will always react the right way to us. He, he's not talking about that sort of victory. The victory that he describes is explained in the clause that, that follows. Thanks be unto God who always leads us in triumph and, say, and causes the aroma of Christ to be spread abroad through us in, in every place. That is one of the great metaphors, I think, in the New Testament for Christian living. What he's saying is that we have about us, wherever we go, the fragrance of Christ. From us emits the sweetness of his life and his aroma so that when people look at us, it's as though they smell the Lord Jesus himself. Oh, what a great figure. Our, our 14-year-old, when, when he was a little bitty guy, got into Carolyn's Estee Lauder. And he didn't just dab it on him. He dumped it on him right over the top of his head. And I swear, for a week, you could smell that kid downwind for a block. <laughs> I was thinking about giving him a bath in tomato juice, like you do your dog when he gets hit by a skunk. It was just awful. But he was unforgettable, I'll tell you. Wherever he went, <laughs> that aroma followed him. And he, 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 like wind song, you couldn't get him out of your mind. <laughs> And what a what a great metaphor for living the Christian life. Wherever you go, you leave behind this unforgettable fragrance of Christ. There's winsomeness and grace, and and uh, a loving, peaceful, gentle spirit. Uh, there's courage to stand against uh, moral attacks and those sorts of things. You, you you have the aroma of the Lord Jesus about you. Such a great figure. And uh, Paul goes on to explain that in in some detail. He says, uh, for we are uh, to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. The effect upon others is twofold and, and uh, uh, antithetical. Uh, on the one hand, we smell very good to some people. On other, to other people, the aroma is very, very bad. He says, we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we smell like death itself. To the other, the fragrance of, of life. Paul divides the human race into two classes, not on the basis of, uh, of sex or race or, or class or culture. Those divisions are all irrelevant. What he does is divide the human race into two classes of people. There are those that are being made alive and there, and there are those that are dying. There aren't any other classes. Those that are being made alive are those that are, that are drawing near to God and their hearts are open. They're dependent upon him. They're growing in grace. And those that are dying are those that have shut themselves off from that message. And life does become more and more deadening uh, apart from God. And we become more death-like in our, in our living. We become bored and jaded and restless and unsatisfied and unhappy. I, I saw an epitaph once, an epitaph in a book that someone else had seen. And uh, when something like this, life is a, is a bore, uh, I often, and all things show it, I thought it once, and now I know it. Uh, and so many people find that to be true of life. It's just boring. 
There's nothing to live for. There's no purpose in life. Well, they're dying. That's all. They're dying. Because they've shut themselves off from the life of God. And Paul says, as you make your way through through life and you emit the fragrance of Christ, there will be some who will, to whom you will smell like life. And they'll be drawn to you and attracted by your, uh, your style of life and the set of your mind and, and, the, and, the, and the way you live and the character that you display. And there are others that will be turned off, totally turned off. They'll dismiss you as a religious crank. And maybe someone who works next to you in, in your shop. And uh, all you're trying to be is, is a gentle and loving witness for Christ. And they get angry and hostile and they make crude jokes about you and they, and they, don't, they don't want to listen. It often happens. It's happened to many of you, I'm sure. Or you, you may be married to someone who's not a Christian and, and uh, they don't like you. Not because you've done anything offensive, but simply because you, you love your Lord. And so they, they constantly find fault. And uh, they may leave, or they may ask you to leave, because they, they're just unhappy and restless with you. That's what happens, you see. People, when you understand this secret, then people cannot be indifferent to you. They can't take you for granted. Wherever you go, they'll either despise you or they'll love you. They, they're never the same after you cross their path, because you leave behind that beautiful fragrance of Christ, which to some people... It's like a stench. They, they can't stand it because it shows them up for what they are. But to others, it oh, it smells so good. They want to know more. They, they, they want you to explain to them the source of your power and, and uh, your wisdom and the reason you can live the way, the way you live. Now, that's what Paul is saying. To some people, he says, we, we have about us the, uh, the smell of death. We smell like death itself. But uh, to others, the, the fragrance of, of life itself. Now, who, he says, is, is up to this? Who is equal for this? Who is sufficient for these things? Uh, our first thought is, what do I have to count upon? Certainly, my, my personality is not very powerful. Uh, I'm not particularly attractive physically. I'm too tall or I'm too short or... I'm underweight, or I'm overweight, or my hair doesn't look right, or, or something, or I don't have enough money to influence anyone. There, there are Christians who give great amounts of money, and, and uh, they're uh, recognized and, and uh, appreciated by the church. I, I can't give any money. And uh, I find that when I try to witness to people, I, I stumble over my words, and I'm not very articulate. It doesn't come together very well. How can I have this kind of impact upon others? What do I do? Do I just grit my teeth and clench my jaw and, and ball up my fists and, and, and try to be fragrant? Try to put on an act? Uh, what, what do I do? How do I accomplish this? And Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? That, that's the question any of us would, would raise when we see what we are to be. See, the Lord is not interested in totally, wholly, in how many church activities you're involved in or what you do for him in terms of your Christian service. That, that's all important. But, but the so-called bottom line, the really important thing, is what we are. It's our character. That's, what, that's the best evangelistic technique going. We teach people how to share their faith, and that's fine. We all need help in, in terms of methodology. But... But really, uh, Scripture keeps putting it back on another basis entirely. The impact that we have upon people is basically what we are, the sort of character that we display. 
And who of us is sufficient for this sort of thing? How do you generate this kind of, of Christian living, this sort of impact upon others? Well, you can't, but you can imitate it. And that's why Paul goes on to say uh, in the last half of the verse, or pardon me, in verse 17, who is equal to such a task? For unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God. In other words, there, once he realizes that he can't trust any of the old methods or gimmicks or ways of, of impacting people, it makes you feel even more insecure. See, we're taught all of our life the way to influence people is to have a powerful personality. You have to have a strong, authoritative voice. You need to stand erect. You need to dress for success. And you know, there's nothing particularly wrong with any of that. Uh, we need to be more assertive, the world tells us. Well, certainly there are times that we need to be more assertive. Uh, you need more education. Uh, all you have is a bachelor's degree. What you need is a Ph.D. And then people will really be impressed and they'll listen to you. And uh, one after another, you know, we, we discover that these are the things that, that make for impact. But they aren't. They aren't. There's no power in any of those things. They can be used, but there's no power in them. They don't impact people for the purpose of death or, or for the sake of death or life. We don't influence people that way with degrees and titles and, and uh, uh, a powerful personality. And Paul says, if we fall back on these things, we're peddlers. That's the word he uses. We're hawking the gospel. We're like door-to-door salesmen. As a matter of fact, that's the word that Paul uses here for peddling the gospel. The noun form of this particular verb refer, uh, refers to these door-to-door salesmen that come knocking on your door and sell you some piece of junk that falls apart in, in, in a week. Or, you know, this, the sort of ads that you see on television. You buy this marvelous tool and it does 59 things. And you get it home and it lasts for a week and it falls into 59 pieces. And you think, man, boy, did I ever get shucked. And well, that's what he's talking about. It's that sort of thing see, that people are inclined to do with the gospel. And the airwaves are full of it. You know, uh, affecting uh, a certain type of mannerism so that you'll appear to be more pious than you really are. Or contriving experiences uh, that are inclined to, you know, that are done to impress people with what you've accomplished. Or uh, uh, appealing to visions and dreams in which God spoke to you in some remarkable way or God appeared to you uh, in some form and told you to do a certain thing. In fact, I was thinking that one of the ways that we could build that building is that I could come in here this morning and say, last night at 11.30 as I was asleep, I was awakened by a bright light in my room. And I looked to the foot of the bed. And there was a 17-foot angel in armor, glowing armor, soared up. And he says, I have a word from God for you. And I say, what is it? And he says, you are to build that building. And you are to tell your congregation that they are each to give $1,000. And if they do, God will bless them materially, physically. He'll make them all wealthy. That's God's will. And I'd come in here and tell you that. Now, it wouldn't work with you all, okay? (laughs) But it does on some people. And all you have to do is turn on your television set and listen to it. The hawking, the peddling, the hustling of people for the gospel is shameful. It's shameful. 
It's a, it's a mixture of Hollywood and Madison Avenue and, and worldly thinking and, and humanistic nonsense in an attempt to try to extract money from people or to impress them with how powerful they are. And you, you all have seen it. You know what I'm talking about. Paul says, I don't do that. I don't fall back on that kind of gimmickry, the tricks and moves that are designed to, to impress people. And, and the minute I realize that I can't count on those things, that makes me feel even more secure. You know, what I've discovered in talking to, to new Christians is that when they discover that, that life has to be lived on a different basis than it was lived when they were non-Christians, it makes them feel very insecure. Throughout all of our life, we're told that, you know, if you're going to get ahead in this world, you've got to hustle. You've got to make your own way. You've got to make things happen. And that's the way to be a success. You've got to count on yourself. Nobody else is going to do it. You have to do it. And then you become a Christian, and you start living your Christian life on that basis. You know that you have to count on God for everything and for your salvation. But you still fall back on your personality and your education and your intellect and everything else. And somebody comes along and says, no, 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 that's not the way you live it. That's not where your power lies. And you start thinking, well, those, those are the tangible assets. It's my money. It's the force of my personality. It's my humor. Those are the assets that I have to bring to this operation. And Paul says, no, no. No, it's the spirit that gives life. And as Jesus put it, the flesh profits nothing. Use those things, but they have no power in them, see? And, and we start thinking, well, I didn't know it was going to be like this. It's almost like withdrawing from a drug. You're so dependent upon it until you get established, uh, until your dependency is placed in something else, you, you, you feel very uneasy. And that's why Paul says, I feel so inadequate when I talk about this because I realize that I cannot bring to this task all of my gifts and all of my abilities and my vast learning and my argumentative skills. They don't amount to anything. I can use them. But that's not what leaves behind this unforgettable uh, fragrance. Paul says, who, who is sufficient for these things? And like so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. Uh, we speak in Christ, that is, we're identified with Christ. Jesus said to the disciples, I and me and you and me. That's, that's the, that's the, those are the relationships that really matter. You're in me and I'm in you. We're so closely identified that when I act, you act. And when you act, I act. And, and furthermore, Paul says, we speak before God. We live our life out before God. We play the game to the coach and not to the crowds. And we do it with sincerity. That's our word that I talked about the first week that we studied Second Corinthians. Without wax, judged by the sun. We're not phony. As far as we know, there are no ulterior motives. We're upfront and honest and genuine, authentic. Like men sent from God, that's the source of our authority. It comes from God. Paul says that's what we are. And because it sounds like he's bragging, he goes on in 3.1 to say, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you're a letter from Christ. The result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of, of human hearts. Uh, it does sound like Paul is bragging, I have to admit. He says, do, I, do, you, do you think I'm bragging? Because I'm talking about my sincerity and, and my authority, where I got my message and how I live my life. 
And apparently this, a number of times they had challenged him and questioned him about his attempts to try to explain himself. They thought he was boasting. The boss says, no, no, I'm not bragging. And he says, and you know I'm not. You know it's true. I don't need any letters of recommendation to you. In those days, there were a lot of religious charlatans, just spiritual hucksters who went from one church to the next ripping people off. And and so the elders, first in the church in Jerusalem, and and then the elders of local churches began to write up letters of, of recommendation so that these itinerating prophets who were on the level would be accepted by the churches. Uh, by the 5th century A.D., the, in the Council of Chalcedon, they actually made it mandatory that before anyone could speak in a church, they had to have letters of commendation. And Paul himself issued them. In Romans 16, there's a little short word of recommendation, commendation of Phoebe. And, and in 1 Corinthians, uh, you, you have a recommendation of Timothy. And here in 2 Corinthians, one of Titus. So Paul wasn't against letters of commendation. What he was, recommendation, what he was saying was if you want a letter... Just look at yourself. You're an open book. One that I carry around in my mind, he says. It's written on our hearts. In Greek thought, that's the mind, the mental processes. It's it's not, you know, I don't have a letter from you that would, I might mislay or, or lose. I just stop and think and I remember what you were like. And, and that's my letter. Uh, back in 1 Corinthians 6, he reminds them, he says, some of you are homosexuals, some of you are fornicators, some of you are adulterers, some of you are swindlers and cheats and liars, but, but you've been sanctified. That's what you used to be. You've been sanctified. You've been cleansed. Whenever Paul would think of those Corinthians, he'd think of a man who, used to, uh, who uh, was homosexual and he came to Christ and his sexual orientation over a period of time changed. And he began a new life. And Paul would say, that's, that's God writing on that man's heart. Now, you want a letter of recommendation? He says, just look around at you, at what, at what happened. He said, I, I served you. I preached the gospel to you. I lived uh, out the fragrance of Christ among you. And, and look what happened. Your lives are changed. And that's an evidence, he says, that, that God is writing on your hearts. The Spirit of God is taking the Word of God and making it real. In your life, you're, you're an open book. People can riffle through the pages of your life and they can see the character of Christ. And Paul says, I didn't do it. I, I just delivered the mail. That's all. But, but Christ wrote on the, on the heart. And he uses an interesting contrast here. Uh, Brian will talk about that next week. But uh, he contrasts a writing on human hearts, on hearts of flesh, with, with writing on stone. On Mount Sinai, God took his finger and he wrote the Decalogue on the two tablets of stone. And uh, that became the standard for Israel. That was the, the will of God expressed in a, in a codified form. But there was no power in those tablets. You couldn't just hold them up and say, all right, go out and do it. Now, Paul wasn't against the law. He loved the law, as the psalmist did in, in Psalm 139. He loved the law. It was an accurate expression of the character of God. It was a good thing, he says. The problem was not with the law. The problem was with people's hearts. As the writer of Hebrews says, uh, God didn't find fault with the law. He found fault with them because they couldn't keep the law. They, They couldn't keep it in the Old Testament. You couldn't keep it in the New Testament era. 
It'd do no good for me to hold up the Ten Commandments and say, here, go out and do it. Actually, all it does is uh, make you want to sin, I find. Uh, like the lady who objected to the posting of the Ten Commandments at the back of the church because she said it puts so many bad ideas in young people's minds. And that's, that's exactly what the law does. If it's just a piece of concrete that, that has writing on it, can't change the heart. But back in the Old Testament and in the New Testament era, any time anyone submitted their will uh, to God, to Jesus as Lord, then uh, their hearts were changed and God began to change them little by little. They began to, to look like Christ wherever they, wherever they went. And the life, the, the effect of their life was like uh, the un, unforgettable effect of a subtle perfume. One of the reasons I love this figure is because perfume, if it's used properly, is subtle. You know, you, you, you women don't bathe in this stuff. It, unless it's subtle, it doesn't do its work. I mean, it overpowers you. But, but there's something about someone who lives a God-dependent life, who's counting on the Lord for his or her strength in life, that, that results in a subtle influence. People can't quite explain it. They don't understand it. It's beyond their kin. But it impacts them. And they can't forget it. They can't get the wind song out of their minds. They, they know there's something going on. Paul says that that's the effect of the gospel being, being written on, on hearts. And then uh, down in uh, verse uh, 4, it concludes this section. Such, confident, uh, such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. In other words, our confidence is that, is that God did this. He wrote on your heart. You're changing. Your lives are being renewed and conformed to the image of Christ. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are confident in ourselves as if anything came from ourselves. But our confidence comes from God. He has enabled us to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Now, Brian's going to pick up this, this passage next week, beginning with, with verse 4. But I just I want you to note verse 5. Not that we are confident of ourselves to do anything. Nothing coming from ourselves. But our adequacy, our sufficiency comes from God. And that's the great secret of the Christian life. Do you want to know how to live the Christian life? Well, you can't. You can't. And I can't either. Only God can live it. You want to do the works of God? Only God can do the works of God. Only Christ can be Christ-like in us. If we try to do it on our own, you know, we can do it for a while. In chapter, in chapter 3, he goes on to talk about the fact that there is a fading glory to self-effort. There is a glory, but it tends to fade away. It's short life. But, but the, the presence of Christ in us means that we always, in every place, uh, uh, live out the fragrance of Christ. People are impacted by the way we live. You see? Now, we try to make it too hard. We say, well, if you want to be a good Christian, uh, you got to be disciplined. And I'm not against discipline. But discipline for the sake of discipline doesn't mean anything. But ordinarily, that's the sort of thing you hear. you got to be disciplined. That means you got to get up at 4.30 in the morning and read the Bible for an hour and a half, and you need to memorize four passages of Scripture every week, and you need to share your faith at least once a day, 
and you need to go to church every time the doors are open, and on and on and on it goes. And all of us know that sort of thing, and I'm not against church going, and I'm not against reading the Bible. Would that all of us did it on a consistent basis. We need that quiet time, that time of solitude with God. But that's not what makes the Christian life effective. That's not what changes us. All of those things, reading Scripture and prayer and memorizing Scripture, are to the end that we might be more and more God-dependent, more uh, more of us relying and depending upon the life of Christ. See? And that's what makes things happen. And basically that dependency is expressed through prayer. Have you ever noticed that you know, there are some strange verses in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, where Jesus seems to give a carte blanche to prayer. He says, anything you ask, I'll do it. And we read those and we think, oh boy, I need some money this week. I've got to pay some bills. So we pray for money. And we pray for all sorts of things, some of which are not God's will at all. But we, we, we use as justification for these open-ended prayers those verses. Whatever you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive, Jesus said. Well, if you've ever noticed, in every case where there is a passage like that, it's in a context of fruit-bearing or character building. And, and what Jesus is saying is, do you want to change your life? Do you want to be more like me? Do you want to be more loving, more patient, more tender, more thoughtful, more courageous, more kind, more gentle, more less defensive? Whatever you want in terms of character, ask for it. Just call him Father and ask him for it. And he'll begin to give it. It doesn't happen overnight. None of us changes like that. But he'll begin to make you more patient, less reactive. Less disturbed by adverse circumstances. Less shaken when, when things begin to go wrong at home, on the job, or, or at home. More stable, more poised, more thoughtful of others. Less inclined to talk about ourselves all the time. More inclined to draw people out and listen to them. More humble. Less proud. He begins to change us, little by little. But it's not by self-effort. It's by dependence upon God. He has to do it. We may will and choose, and we may have to act, and sometimes it seems as though we are the ones that are acting. But underneath is this reliance upon God who does everything in us and through us. Now, let me illustrate. Uh, suppose I bought an airplane. I don't know how to fly, but suppose I bought one. And uh, I take you out to uh, Boise Air, and I'm going to show you my airplane, and I help you get in the passenger seat and I sit up in the pilot seat and we buckle up and then I say okay uh, uh, if you notice uh, if you lift up the floorboards there are two holes right under your feet where you stick your legs down through those holes and uh, you look at me but you figure I know what I'm doing so you put your legs down through the two holes and I have two holes on my side and I and I put my legs down through those holes okay now uh, lift the plane up so you put your feet on the ground and we we lift up the plane and it's really heavy but, you know, we barely make it, and we kind of stagger over to the runway, and I get clearance from the tower. And I say, all right, we're taking off. And I said, uh, you know, this thing has yet to be going about uh, 10 miles an hour uh, in order to get off the ground. So we've got to get our ground speed up to at least uh, 10 miles an hour. And so we start running like crazy down the runway. And I say, all right, uh, retract your legs. We, you know, we're, we, we're right there at uh, the takeoff point. And you pull your legs up, and we fly about six feet, and we go, crash, bump, 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 bump. And I say, boy, that was great. Last time I only went three feet. <laughs> what a flight. Isn't that fun? And you look at me, 
like I've had all the dots shot off my dice, and you say, uh, what is this? I said, you see that thing out front? That's called a propeller. And right behind the propeller is this great big engine. And all you have to do is crank that thing up. I'd advise that you take a few lessons in flying first, but all you have to do is crank that thing up, and then you can really fly. This is crazy for you to haul this thing around. I said, well, I, I never did know that. So well, that's the secret. I said, that's the secret. The motor is up there. You're not intended to fly. You weren't made to fly. You don't have the power to fly. The only way you can fly is by depending upon that, that engine. And we say, well, I don't want to be dependent on anyone. You see, that's the real problem. That's what keeps people from Christ. It's not intellectual things. It's never. I, I really can say that. It's never intellect. You know, people may have some questions about the Bible, but the real issue is who or what is going to run our life? Who's going to rule? And being a Christian means dependent upon the life of another. And we don't like that. But nevertheless, though we may not like it when we do it, we begin to live life the way it was intended to be lived. We start flying. And it gives an entirely different complexion to the Christian life. It, it isn't a drag. It isn't hard. It, you know, it, it, it doesn't drain us of energy to try to keep up a false front. Oh, that is so tiring. To try to be a good Christian on the outside when you know you're dying inside. It just wears you out. You see, you don't have to do that. We can just be honest. We do fail. We all sin. We all make mistakes. That's why they had cities of refuge in the Old Testament as a place to run when you made a mistake. Everybody's like that. We're all in need. We're all weak. We can't make it on our own. We need God. We need all of his life in us. We must be dependent upon him. Let's pray. Lord, what a freeing thing to discover that, that everything depends on you. We know we, we must will and we must choose, but we know that you're at work in us, both to will and to choose for us. That, that these surges of will that we experience come from your Spirit. And, and we know we must choose to act, but when we do, we know underneath are the everlasting arms. You're the one who gives us the strength to follow through and, and you give us the power to be patient and kind to those who are, who are impatient with us and, and unkind in their reactions to us. Lord, what, what, a, what a, a restful thing it is to know that you're at work in us, both to will and to do of your good pleasure. Set, us, set our minds straight in this matter, Lord. Deal with our pride. Help us to be more restful, more dependent, more trustful. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.